you have been so good to me. If you know this Jesus, the diagnosis of cancer, the loss of a job, don't rattle the very fiber because we have Christ to cling to, don't we? You look at this world and people are so fearful, so concerned, but we have Christ. What a praise. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that you are so good to us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We didn't seek after you. I love the line in the song that your goodness sought after us. Lord, we were dead in sin, shackled to its our master at that point, which was Satan ultimately, according to Ephesians 2, energized by the dark side, rebellious, and yet you reached out. And you sent your son, and it said that you, O oh Father, loved the world that you gave us, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you. And this morning, as we go to the text that's, that's coming through loud and clear, we are who we are because of Christ, and we are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3. It is good to have you here this morning. Colossians chapter 3, if you've just joined us, we're journeying through this small epistle. This is written to a group that Paul has never visited. Colossae is not far from Ephesus, so we know that his ministry there spilled over. And a gentleman by the name of Epaphras is most likely the founder of this church. Epaphras is with Paul in Rome, and they're not there having a tour of Italy not eating some great pizza. Actually, I've been told that's not from Italy, but we won't go there. I don't know. <clears throat> Ravioli. They're, they're in Rome because they're in prison for Christ. And you got to remember that as Paul's writing this letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's so significant. In chapter 2, he's dealt with the false teachers, and it, it's kind of been a little bit of a Debbie Downer. It's all this negative stuff. Don't, you know, don't go down that road. Don't let them judge you. And he changes midstream in this epistle in 3, 1 through 4, and we now shift to a positive uh, tone, and it really serves as kind of a capstone of what we've just seen, but also a bridge into the latter part of this letter, the next two chapters, which deal with what does it mean to walk with Christ? And so it shouldn't be surprised, shouldn't surprise you that Christ in these four verses that we're going to look at this morning is mentioned five times. Five times he's going to highlight in, in Christ, with Christ. In fact, with Christ is three times. And, and you'll see the, the sermon outline that's there before you. I see first we're dealing with the past. He's going to move to the present and then in the future with Christ. So let's look at the text. Chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul writes, therefore, and if you see that word, you need to know, ah, this is springing off of something he has just stated, which is true. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, and it's a, what we call a first-class condition. In other words, he knows full well you have, and it's true. If you have been raised with Christ, and you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. Remember the false teachers? They're concerned about everything on the earth. Don't touch that. Don't, don't look at that. You know, all these little hoops you have to jump through. And Paul says, uh, it's not about the things of the earth, it's things above. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a strange phrase for Paul to say in God. And we'll talk about why he throws that in there. And then verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, I'm reading out of the Net Bible, you could render that Christ, your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. As you can see in your notes, the first portion of this section, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, deal with our past. And what Paul is calling for, I think, is building deliberately on the past, our position, is we're raised with Christ. Notice what he says, since you have been raised with him. It's, it's a reality. It's not something they're hoping they obtain, or if the tea leaves are just right, this is where it's going to be. No, he says, you've been raised with Christ. Now, maybe you don't think this way. I, I thought it was a little odd that he doesn't start with being dead first. I mean, you die, and then you're raised. He gets to the dead part in verse 3. Right, and you think that's a little odd. It's it's also odd because it's not how he's handled this elsewhere in the epistle. And so you go, why are you starting with the resurrection, Paul? Because he is wanting to move forward. I think in in what God has done for us, the enslavement to sin. Yes, we we talked about that in chapter two, and, and how we've died to that, and certainly the death. He's going to highlight again in three. But the focus is the life we now have, this resurrection. And I want you to watch that as we move through this section. With Christ, in Christ is a common phrase in Paul's writings, isn't it? You see this in numerous locations. Brian Chappell makes this quote. It's a long one, so bear with me. But he says, because of our union with Christ, we are not hated Weakness, wrongdoing, and failings cling to us, oh yes, but they do not establish who we are. We are the beloved of God. Though sins still exist in our own lives, we have the status of the one who has given us life, God's own Son. And because of all the love that Christ who indwells us, we have the ability to change and progress in our Christian walk. Yes, there's still work to do, Brian states. But as we seek to obey our God, we must remember that we obey Him because of who we are. We're raised with Christ. That's what he says, since we're raised with Him, right? First John 3 states, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And again, verse 4 is going to highlight this again, Christ who is your life. The idea of being raised from the dead is not foreign to already to our study of Colossians. Chapter 1, remember in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, he mentions in that great Christological section that Christ is the, the firstborn of the dead. Later in chapter 2, verse 12, he says we've been, we've been raised with Christ. So the emphasis on resurrection is, is very important. But Paul says, okay, that's your status, your position, but what's the consequence? What is the result? Notice what he says. Keep seeking the things above. I think I mentioned, but this is the first positive exhortation that Paul has given. Well, 
he'll start with the negative, move to positive. But here he starts with the positive. Then he moves to the negative, not the things of the earth. And so he says to seek. It's interesting. It's an ongoing command. This isn't something that's accomplished overnight or taking a course at seminary or participating in a Bible study. The things above, notice he repeats that twice here in the first two verses, refers to the things of heaven. If you want to write down a text, John 8 mentions this. It's seeing the big picture from God's point of view. He says, this is what we're seeking. We're seeking those things above where, where, where Christ is. Notice he tells us exactly where they're above when he says where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a loaded term. If you remember in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 is called a messianic psalm. It was words given to David and his offspring, and it lets you know there's a day coming when one of David's descendants will reign supreme. It shouldn't surprise you then that Psalm 110 is used most frequently of Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, it's the text cited most often in the New Testament. I'm going to, can I grab a cough drop? So sorry. All right, so Psalm 110 is the most quoted 33 times. Hayes, in his book on glory, states it articulates the supreme glory, the divine transcendence of Jesus through whom salvation was mediated. Hebrews 12, turn to Hebrews 12. Let's look at this text, and you'll see this when I'm talking about use of Psalm 110 and why it's so significant. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight of sin that clings. And it says in verse 2, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer, excuse me, and perfecter of our faith. It states, For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. And notice the next line, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Of all texts to apply here, back in Colossians, turn back to Colossians. We have this emphasis on Jesus and his position with God Almighty. And he highlights that we, notice to go back to Colossians, look at this text, because it's key. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand. What is Paul stating? This is the one of the supreme one of Christ. He is in the heavenly realm. And this is why Hayes states, it articulates, use of Psalm 110, the supreme glory, his divine transcendence of Jesus through whom salvation was mediated. We keep this up. I'll need someone to mediate for me. Excuse me. And that is annoying. 
So Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 is highlighted through this to show he is the supreme one. And Paul says, you need to keep thinking or seeking those things where Christ is located. The implication of the command <clears throat> is number one, it, it, it indicates that we have ability to do it. Right? I don't tell my dog, go make an ice cream sundae. My dog can't do it. If we're commanded to do this, <clears throat> the assumption is we can do it. Second, he implies there's a responsibility to do so. <clears throat> that the process is not something that occurs naturally. And that the authority of the things above is over our lives. And so all of that is seen here. But there's a question that I put in your notes. And there's three of them in your notes you'll see. And the first of these is how do we seek the things above? Right? Nice, it sounds lofty, Paul, thank you. I can hang that on my spiritual beak. But what does that mean? <clears throat> and notice in verse 2, he says, keep thinking. So thinking and sinking are woven together. And the term is very interesting. <clears throat> it means to take someone's side, to espouse someone's cause. In other words, it's the direction that governs one's life. <clears throat> The idea, it, it, it's what is consuming you when he says to keep thinking on things above. <clears throat> we had a, a friend of our family <clears throat> that uh, sold Avon products. <laughs> I hope there's no Avon ladies here today. But <clears throat> this, this dear lady, that's all she could think about. And you dreaded seeing her at church because, I mean, she's going to whip out the catalog, you know. Here it is. <clears throat> and those, those bottles, those Avon bottles, etc. But it, it, every moment it consumed her, her being. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I wrote down, what consumes you? What are you thinking about most? Is it long-term goals? A degree? A promotion? Future plans with your children? A spouse? A school to attend? A personal identity? What is consuming you? And, and Paul says what needs to consume us are the things above. How do you know? What do you think about when you're sitting in silence? Right? When you're laying in bed in the morning and you're not quite awake, it's between hitting the buzzer the third and the fifth time, and you're laying there, what's going through your mind? <clears throat> That, that, that's a good indication of what consumes you. Read through your journal if you diary, uh, do all that stuff. Uh, what's in there? <clears throat> and Paul says what should consume us is Christological. What do I mean by that? That is what I think Paul is saying is that the things of the Lord, they become our motivation, our resolution, and our application. How do we seek the things of the Lord? We identify, first of all, with him. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you, you can't seek the things of the Lord. You're dead in sin. You, you can't move to that level. So there's identification. There's an empowerment of the Spirit that comes. But it also means being rooted in the Word of God, accountable and interacting with God's people. And I would argue it includes intentionality. You, you can't be passive in the Christian life. Right? Romans 12, seek the things. Keep the, the mind of Christ dwelling on him. 
Warren Wiersbe in his commentary states, what is seeking the things of the Lord? Being, it says it means that the practical everyday affairs of life get their direction from Christ. It means further that we look at earth from heaven's point of view. No, not so that we're of no earthly value, right? We don't mean that. <clears throat> but what consumes our thoughts is Christ. I love it that um, put Amy on the spot. Amy was in a car accident this week. She's okay. The car is not. Picking up church bulletins. What a sacrifice, right? <clears throat> and I wrote to Tom, and he said, yeah, she's fine. And he said, it's so great. Pray for us, because we have an opportunity to share Christ with the guy that hit her. That's the mind of Christ, right? My first response is, you just wrecked my car, right? And no, they're going, let's, let's talk about Christ. Thank the Lord we're safe. Thank the Lord he's protected us. That's seeking the mind, that's, that's thinking of the things above and Paul says, this is what needs to consume us. Now, remember, I said chapter 3, 1 through 4 is a springboard. This is where we're going to head because he's going to tie this in and how we interact with others. We'll see that later as we move through the epistle. And so first, he says, building deliberately on the past. You've been raised with him. So consequently, we need to seek the things, keep thinking about the things that are above. Secondly, it's resting securely in the present Notice verse 3, you have died. Again, <clears throat> not a foreign concept to this epistle. He's highlighted this in chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 2 as well. Romans 6 talks about this. I love this quote. It says, on that cross he was crucified for me, but on that cross I am crucified with him. The one aspect brings us deliverance from sin's condemnation, the other from sin's power. We have died to the authority of sin over our life. Pastor, I was once told a story I'd heard. These two sisters loved to party. They were high school, they went into college years, and they were quite the party animals. <clears throat> Eventually, they were both converted, they found Christ. And they received an invitation to go to one of these rather ungodly parties. And they wrote back in their RSVP and says, We regret that we cannot attend because we have both died. <laughs> <laughs> That's dying to sin, the authority of sin. And so then the question is, so what? What does Paul say? So your life is hidden with Christ. <clears throat> Isn't this great? You're not lying in a coffin. You're not planted six foot under, right? You're not an ash heap in some urn on a mantle. You're hidden with Christ. The text is so clear. This is why you have to learn Greek because Christ is thrown to the front of the, 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 the sentence. Christ is who you're hidden with, is being stressed. And it's in a perfect tense, which means the event happened at a point, which is your conversion, and it is ongoing, the effect. And it says, you've been hidden with Christ. And of course, immediately the question is, what does that mean? I'm hidden with Christ, right? Peekaboo, I mean, what are you talking about? And let me give you four things to write down in your notes. First of all, hiddenness with Christ entails satisfaction. Do you remember Adam and Eve when they were 
After, just after they sinned, what did they do? They hid from Christ. Sin had severed that relationship. And now they're under the judgment of God Almighty. Christ dies. We are with him in death. We are with him in the resurrection. And now we are hidden with Christ. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. Because we are with him. We find our identity in Jesus. And so the satisfaction comes that I'm with him. Isn't that glorious? Your socks should be rolling up and down. He says, you've been hidden with Christ. Secondly, hiddenness with Christ not only entails satisfaction, but peace. John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. Outside of Christ, there is no safe place to hide. Ask Adam and Eve. Being found in Christ, there's peace. The death that reigned over us has been swallowed up in victory. And now we have peace, hidden with Christ in a world that does not know this mystery, does not know this one. And that leads us to the third point. Hiddenness with Christ entails security. I loved playing hide-and-go-seek with the kids when they were young. Not so much now when they're older. They're too good. But when they're young, they're great. You can just hide behind the bed and they don't even see you, right? And what I loved is when one of the kids would find me and we'd play that sardine game where you, you then hide with that person until the next person finds you, right? And I loved when one of my kids would say, I'm hiding with daddy because I know we're safe here. This is good. Hidden with Christ, it's good. It's security with him. Notice the text says, we're hidden with Christ. And I love the next phrase. Paul's just kind of stacking the deck in God. There's no question here. You're safe in Christ who's in God. And we are one with them. So here we are in Christ. Robertson states, who is in God? No thief, not even Satan himself can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And so here you have, we are hidden with Christ because we find, in so doing, we find satisfaction, we find peace, we find security. And let me add one more. We find access to God's glorious riches. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 3. Look at this. In fact, you got to start in 2, 2. My goal is that their hearts, having been knit together in love, may be encouraged, that they may have all the riches that assurance brings in their understanding, the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're hidden in the glorious riches of Christ if you know Jesus as your Savior. Wow. Right? <laughs> we could go home with that. To say that we are hidden with Christ, it means satisfaction. It means peace. It means security. And it means access to all of God's glorious riches. And so we build deliberately on the past. We, we rest securely in the present. And there's one more. Paul, I love how he seals the deal here in verse 4. And that is we trust confidently in the future. 
Notice he states our position. He says, we, when Christ, and I love this, I mentioned this, our life, in other words, our life is Christ. It's our identity. It's what we're alive to. It's like a kid who, who loves Legos. It's, it's all they can talk about, right? It's what consumes them. For a teenager, it's shopping or dating. I don't know. It's what consumes them. From TikTok to Twitter, I mean, it's all about being the end. And, and our lives are Christ. It's what consumes us. It, it goes back to what we're to seek. It means that we're hidden with him. It all ties together. And, and Christ is our identity. And notice he links this, not just to the death, not just to the resurrection, but to Christ's appearance, is Christ's coming. I love it. When Christ, oh, who is your life, appears. And, and notice, it's not if Christ should appear, it's when. I don't know about you, but he can come today. <laughs> I'm ready. This old world is so tainted with sin desperately needs the hope and peace that comes from Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. But Christ is coming back. Oh, you can question it, but just as he came, literally fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, he will come again. And so we long for that day. And, and this, this future coming, he's already talked about it. Chapter 1, verse 12, the part of the inheritance that we seek. In chapter 2, or later in chapter 1, 27, it's the hope of glory. Chapter 2, he talks about it as well, how we, we long for this glory. And he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then notice the next line, here's the result, you too will be revealed in glory. There's, in one sense, you have the glory of Christ now, but in another sense, you, you long to be like him. I think 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been manifested. But we know that when he is manifested, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3. And Paul states in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from here that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform, listen to what Paul states, the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. Woohoo, right? By the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. When Christ appears, and he will, you will be revealed in glory. And don't miss the last prepositional phrase, with him. He doesn't state in Christ here. He says with Christ, which indicates the intimate personal relationship we have with our Savior. One theologian writes, to be with Christ looks forward to the future when the destiny of Christians after death or after the parousia, the second coming, is in view. There's a day coming. And so the question in your notes is, what are the implications of knowing that we will be revealed with Christ? It's a great theological exercise, but so what? 
What does that mean? Let me give you three things. First of all, we shall participate in the culmination of history. The final revelation of our Savior in all its glory. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about how we who are not dead will meet those who have gone before us in the air. Revelation 20. And so, we look at this one who is to come. Think about this. Christ isn't going to bask in all his glory in heaven and just forget us. <laughs> He's not going to forgo the inconvenience of returning. We were on vacation. My wife goes, I think we'll just stay. <laughs> well, as nice as a place might be here on this globe, imagine heaven and Christ saying, no, I'm coming back. Rather than growing weary from the fragility of humanity and our mess-ups, rather than simply forgetting the entire ordeal, the return of Christ serves as a key event in God's cosmic plan for this globe. And so, when it says Christ is going to come, he's revealed in glory, we go, yes, the culmination is going to come. And that leads us to the second. We have a guarantee that all the crud of this world will be dealt with. This world clamors about injustices. <laughs> they will be dealt with. The sovereign judge who doesn't need in a Senate appointed position as serving, he's paid the price and he understands. And so no created being can withstand or thwart his sovereignty. Even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of chaos, hurts, and disappointments, we can rest in the surety of his word. When Christ, who is your life, comes, is revealed. And then third, I wrote down, what is the implication of knowing we will be revealed with Christ in glory? The revelation of Christ in glory displays his great love for us. William Barclay stated, Jesus' coming is the final and unanswerable proof that God cares. The one who died for us. The one who was raised and allowed us to be part of that glorious resurrection is the same God who's going to return our Savior, our life, Jesus, in all glory. And so this morning, are you struggling with life? Has it been a rough week? Cling to Christ. Seek the things above. Bask in that you're hidden with him. And know there's a day coming when we'll be united with our Savior in all glory. If you don't know this Christ, ah, we want to share with you some riches. See us afterwards, how we can show how it comes simply by trusting in what Christ has accomplished. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so simple, but extremely costly. It cost Christ his life, but he is seated at the right hand. He is not wringing his hands on what the election might hold or when a vaccine might be found, he's in charge. And he says, there's a day coming, right? Father, thank you.
Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the one, the living word who came, became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory. <laughs> for nearly 500 years, 400 years, the glory of the temple had departed, your Shekinah glory. As it hovered over the Mount of Olives, as it looked back and then fully departed. And then Christ appeared, the glory they had longed to see returned. And Lord, there's a day coming when that glory will return again on the Mount of Olives, our Savior Jesus. In the meantime, we are raised with your Son. We have been dead to sin because we died with him. And Father, at this very moment, we are hidden with Christ at your very throne room the one who is sitting at your right hand, who's interceding on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you. It's so easy to lose sight that you're on the throne. It's so easy to lose sight in the midst of this chaotic world we're living in to know, no, you are supreme. And we need not fear. Help us to have lives that are seeking the things above as we long to be with you in glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.